You're listening to the Pastoral Calling Podcast with Matt Loverin and me, Jim Shamaria. Our goal is to start a conversation about life and leadership in the local church. Welcome back to the Pastoral Calling Podcast. I'm Jim. And I'm Matt. And we are back. We're coming at you fast and furious. We're really excited to be joined today by Brian Walker. Yeah. This is like our first, I don't know. In-person guest. In-person guest since pre-pandemic. Chris Chris DeBlay was our last in-person guest. Yeah, we had Josh through the Zoom, but now we're sitting across the table from Brian Walker. Brian, welcome. Yeah, thank you. Thank (laughs) you for having me. It's It's really good to be here with you guys. Brian, why don't you tell everyone what your new role is with the Grace Gospel Fellowship, because I'm pretty sure I'll get it wrong. All right. Um, I am the president of Grace Gospel Fellowship, and Matt Amundsen and I work together. Matt is a vice president, and we um, serve our churches around the country. How long have you been doing that? I came into this role in mid-2021, so coming into my first full year. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, right. That's crazy. That's almost been that long. Went quick. Yeah, yeah. And you, you come into that role with some unique experience, mm-hmm. not necessarily full-time pastoral ministry experience, which has been the case for, for previous presidents of the Grace Gospel Fellowship. So tell us a little bit about your background and how you got to the role. So I, you know, my background is, was originally in the for-profit world, leading and, and managing in for-profit organizations. And um, in the early 2000s, I owned a a chain of restaurants with my family and we sold that and really knew at that time that nonprofit was an area that I had a heart for Um, and faith-based nonprofit in particular um, I just saw the need to be able to transfer the 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 skills I learned in education and and um, my job uh, my past jobs into the nonprofit faith-based world and so I was able to come into Grace Bible College at the time and Ken Kemper, President Kemper, and I started at about the same time. And I was his vice president of advancement and marketing in the early 2000s. And um, Shout out to the early 2000s. Yeah, Grace hey, Bible College. We were here at that time. You I were. started right about that time. You did. Yeah, you yeah. did. Both you guys were here. Yeah. I, I met the Lovern family and yeah. Jim, Jimmy Shamari at the time. <laughs> the traveling steak fry Rick RV. I, yes, yeah, yeah, that, that was, was good. Traveled around the country. Yeah, that was. <laughs> what exa- How would you define a steak fry? Because that's a word that I was not familiar with yeah. until I moved to the Midwest. I don't usually associate steaks and frying. Yeah, yeah it was that was interesting. I didn't realize we were in such a <laughs> massive culture gap between you know West Michigan and, and the rest of the world. So steak fry to us was cooking a steak on a grill that was uh not 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 a grill fest but a steak fry right and as soon as we got out of michigan i realized i was way off it's a vat of oil a vat of oil is the key ingredient to a fry right what fondue i think yeah Uh (laughs) yeah Uh or you like fry your whole turkey in a huge vat of oil yeah if there's no oil like if you don't if there's no submersion in oil it's not a fry is that not I just can't validate that. Okay. I, I don't have that. I <laughs> yeah, I that think that sounds that. right. I mean, that's what yeah. a frying pan is, right? Oh, uh-huh. are you being sarcastic? No, I'm serious. Like, you, oh. get, you, have, you have to have a little bit of oil in the frying yeah, pan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Unless it's yeah, nonstick. And yeah, but air fryer that throws your whole entire thing. Yeah, in, but in that's that, that like, that's some Gen Z stuff. We don't even want to get into that. <laughs> you guys fryers. haven't done the air fryer? We have one, but yeah. we use it sparingly. Yeah. Out of just protest to the fry industry? It, well, it's part of our Instapot. 
Oh yes. It's like an attachment to the Instapot. All right. So anyways, <laughs> the steak fries. Back to it. So the steak fry, we traveled around the country, Amy and myself, my wife and um, our kids hopped in a motorhome and pulled a trailer and went from church to church sharing and Amy would sing and I would talk about the college. And These would be the GGF churches? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. GGF churches and got a chance to get to know the communities around those churches, which without any kind of foreknowledge really prepared me for this role mm-hmm. because I've spoken in almost every church, mm-hmm. got to know a lot of those pastors and a lot of the men who maybe are retired now or or are um, at a different age stage than they were then. But it was it prepared me for the role of being able to travel around the country mm-hmm. and, uh, and speak in churches. Mm-hmm. And then after Grace, you got additional background in nonprofit work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot so of I, executive experience. Yeah, I, I, I got a uh, master's degree in public administration and, and healthcare and nonprofit leadership and through Western Michigan University and went into a uh, healthcare industry and led a healthcare organization for um, down in the southern part of the state of Michigan. And that gave me exposure not only to a larger health, uh, larger um, nonprofit format, but also into the healthcare format and into dealing, w- working closer with um, the legislative and Lansing Michigan groups, um, mm. getting things passed through Mich- Michigan Medicare, Medicaid programming. So that gave me a, a broader perspective of leadership probably more than industry but leadership you know when you when you are at the at the at the executive role what that how that changes a bit i think it's safe to say that brian is the most successful guest we've ever had on our Ooh, podcast hey. <laughs> well, it really depends on how you define success <laughs> right <laughs> yes <laughs> certainly the highest level of executive well, experience it, and it is that. different and i think we'll get into that as mm-hmm. the interview goes on is your background is different than a lot of the folks we've had on this podcast um and i think there's there's ways that you can speak you know to that Mm -hmm. um but before we get into that let's talk a little bit more about brian walker the man yeah yeah okay so you have a family yeah three daughters okay um and two son-in-laws and three grandchildren all granddaughters so um, your three daughters were little kids and were staples around gbc campus when i was when i was here i remember them yeah, there are. We have some pictures. Around. Like when we opened this building that we're sitting in, the Jack T. Dean building, we have pictures of my children sitting on a bench right outside when we were um, <laughs> opening the doors for this building, and they were young girls, yeah, like, like toddlers, yeah, right? yeah. or maybe not quite. Um, yeah, they're in their thirties and late twenties right okay. now, so okay. would have, they would have been like in that early tween age okay. or young okay. tween age. Yeah, yeah. So toddlers was maybe a little bit of an under. <laughs> they seemed young to you. They might have toddled. It might have been toddle. Um, I, I don't, uh, I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, so that, okay. that was a really, I would say, a, a special time in our family's life where we got to work together in ministry for the first time and um, in a ministry we deeply loved Yeah, with guys like you and your wives and um, to get to know people and to really become part of a ministry was the first time we ever did that vocationally. Mm. So what was the sense of coming into the president? Hold on. I still want to get into the, you're, you're, we need to just get to know Brian here a little bit more, Matt. We need to talk (laughs) hobbies. Okay. All right. You're jumping the gun. I think it's the one mic thing. I know. (laughs) Me and Mike are, Matt are sharing mic. It's okay. Brian, what do you like to do for fun? Yeah. Yeah. You know, so, um, that's, that's, that's a unique question. Answer emails. Yeah, it feels it feels <laughs> like create that. graphs. That's loads of fun. That's what I do in my free time. <laughs> I, I love that. Um, you know, I I 
I don't have a lot of hobbies, oddly enough. Um, I just enjoy being with my family. I really do. Um, Grandfathering yeah. is one of the coolest things I've, I've ever had a chance to do. Um, Amy and I like to travel a little bit. And uh, and so, you know, it, it seems like, it feels like, this is just a theory. You don't start making hobbies until your kids are out of the house, and that's yeah. relatively new for us. Otherwise, you're a dad, and that's it. And, you know. That's an interesting insight because m- most of the hobbies that I have, we didn't have Isla till we had been married for like five years or so. So like we had that pre-kid time to like do that sort of thing. And now it's, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's hard to build a hobby when you have a yeah. house of kids. Yeah. Um, Cause you know, rightly you're, you're dedicating yourself to that. So I'm just trying to figure out hobbies right now. And uh, we I, could do a, a user or a listener poll to like find a hobby for Brian. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> kind of <laughs> like a bachelor type situation. Vote A People if you want Brian bring, to become a, you yeah. know, a, Learn how to crochet. <laughs> yeah. yeah, crochet. Yeah, I do. I do like. I do like being outdoors. We we like doing things like that and playing um, in the water a little bit. So. You're kind of a car guy, aren't you? I like Don't cars. You like cars. I like guns. Cars and guns. I like shooting, ska- uh, skeet and trap and things like that. And okay, those are fun. Those yeah. are. I don't know if they're hobbies yet, though. That's a weird thing. Yeah, yeah. I, I like them. I don't know if they're a hobby quite yet. Um, I gotta figure. Hobby out. in utero. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> golf? No, I don't golf anymore. No, no you golf? Unfortunately. Only when forced. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've golfed maybe five times in my life. Really? Yeah. yeah. I used to love golf, but just an injury keeps me from playing. So uh-huh. that's that's also what happens when your kids leave as you get older. And that uh, the things that you used to like to do. I love playing soccer and refing soccer, but that oh, yeah. doesn't work anymore. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I feel like it's probably going to be a sitting kind of a hobby. <laughs> City. Maybe a walking. Maybe you start playing like Sim City or something like that. <laughs> World of Warcraft. Yeah, yeah. I, there's I there's options. We mm-hmm. could get you mm-hmm. out there. And, and you know, right now, you guys both understand this. I'm finishing a, a doctor program. So oh, I'm yeah, yeah. Tell us about that. that. Mm-hmm. What are you doing there? So I'm um, nearing the end of a, of a doctoral program through Liberty University, through their um, School of Divinity. It's a, a degree in um, nonprofit ministry leadership. And uh, um, and so I'm nearing the end. I just submitted my three chapter prospectus hey, nice. this last weekend. So now I'm waiting for the approval to proceed. Okay. I think I'll be done by August. August feels. I, f- I th- feel like that end line keeps moving, yeah. but um, I think it's probably just because I was hoping it would be earlier. And I think August is my end right now. So that would be nice. So that seems to be a hobby right now. Yes. Studying and writing. That takes up a lot of the spare time for it sure. Does. It does. And I I really appreciate these PhD programs that are very tracked. And mm-hmm. once you finish chapters one, two, and three, they're finished. Mm-hmm. And then you move on and you complete the project at that point. And it's not you know, this endless drawn out cycle of mm-hmm. writing and revising and writing and revising, mm-hmm. which is kind of what I went through, which is a, an extended yeah. dissertation process. This is, this is, um, this is a nice program. I really actually sought one out with this. I, I knew I needed to have a guided process, just knowing me, um, knowing me and not my interest to keep things moving. Uh, having it guided allows me to stay on track. Um, so I, I'll have just finished my last course, and then my the last thing I have to do is do my research and writing, and then defense, which is feeling close. <laughs> feeling close. Go, Brian. Yeah, yeah. You can do it. Okay, I'm satisfied, Matt. You can carry I have passed with the, the interview. Yeah. Yeah. You are known. As long as Jim is satisfied, we'll continue. <laughs> um, 
So tell us how you yeah. came into the president of the Grace Gospel Fellowship role and what drew you to that. Mm-hmm. Because I think for someone who's been in the corporate world, nonprofit leadership, executive leadership, that doesn't really look like a career advancing move, mm-hmm. you know, from the outside business world perspective. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it is. Mm-hmm. How did you how did you interpret like the desire to make that change and then mm-hmm. what you brought to the role and why that was a, a, a yes for you? So between now and then, I was a superintendent of a Christian school in West Michigan and um, learned some really good um, skills in small nonprofit leadership because my my paradigm was relatively large nonprofit. And when you're in a small nonprofit um, ministry, you are um, learning new skills that aren't easily scalable when you're in a big organization. And, um, And so... Nearing the end of that, I was, um, I had been, I had been in that organization to help them move that organization around. It was, it was in a space of um, just having troubles early in, and so that was one of the reasons they they brought me in was to come in and bring um, change and, and growth opportunity. And we brought on board uh, our my successor to allow me to begin phasing out of that role. And Amy and I were just really talking and praying about it about what does that look like is like near I would what I would hope to be the the, the final season of my career um, in leadership what would that look like and so we started talking about what were meaningful things that I have a deep passion for and I I really did I had no passion to go into a large organization although there were you know clearly opportunities in in leadership to go into a large organization um, and um, and I, I began really praying over what would be the an organization that could have a meaningful and um, I would say uh, something I would be really passionate about. And I've been involved with the Grace Gospel Fellowship my whole entire life and, and have been able to be part of it in one way or another, either as a, um, at a church or a board member or through the university. And, um, and I've been following that, and I saw the opportunity to be part of something that would be able to use my gifts, I felt. Um, and from there, as I look at, you know, I look at all the things that I... Th- if I, if I was on the hiring committee of the GGF to hire a president, I would probably look for the things that I have been able to do, travel around the country, meet all the pastors, speak in their churches, love the organization, come at it with a competency of leadership from nonprofit from a little different angle than it's been led by before. And so I, was, I saw the, the opportunity to come and do something meaningful with people who I really deeply care for. Um, and that was a weird... Uh, weird nuance in this step in my career because besides the college back in 2001 when I came and worked here I had never worked with an organization that I knew anybody so mm. I could make formative change and Not without hurting anybody without hurting anyone's yeah, feelings or caring yeah, as yeah, much yeah, maybe yeah, so yeah, and, yeah. and really interestingly so there, that is certainly different but also not being um, necessarily committed to seeing my change make take effect other than the first stages of the change management process. And um, when I began to pray about the opportunity within the Grace Gospel Fellowship to help lead this ministry, I was also committed to being able to see that our changes take effect. Um, and and there's something interestingly lonely about being a change manager is you never really build relationships. You come into an organization, you institute the change required, and then you leave. And so 
everyone else is going out for lunch together and you know they're building these long-term friendships together you're toby I, yeah i'm the toby in the back room <laughs> <laughs> nobody likes and um and you you build that you build that into your role and so when i was thinking and praying about this a year ago or more ago i said i want to move into an, a ministry that i can actually build meaningful relationships mm-hmm. something that that I can see happen and that I can build the relationships with the folks who I'm working with more than just their change manager. And so that's, that's, that's a, I suppose a, a short space. That sounds, that sounds great. And it also sounds intimidating hmm. from being able to move from that change management role in a nonprofit where you can make the decisions and it affects people and you're not invested to now you want to come in and lead an organization and and have those close relationships with people Mm. like it feels just as you describe it it felt more high risk Mm -hmm. because i want to make this change i want to benefit i want to do something meaningful and significant and i know this people like that that's Mm. that's sticking your neck out Mm -hmm. yeah i I think maybe at the risk of sounding making a complex situation simple as we navigate through our careers there's one of two let's just use that one of two different tracks we can have in our career one is to come in and stay and you're just there like you're you're part of the fabric and you become part of that fabric whatever layer of leadership or role you're in in that organization and the other is change you're you're moving from organization to organization and for some pastors they might move from a church to a church or for leaders they might go from a role to a role or organization to organization um and but I think with both of those examples, and this is maybe not scientific, but we aggregate our gifts. Um, if you stay in one place and you, you stay there, you get better, I hope. Mm-hmm. I think somebody would hope that as you're staying in one place, you're not just there. You're getting better at your tradecraft, getting better at why you do what you do, and, and maybe even more missional. Your mission becomes sharper, maybe. Um, those of us who have made changes in the organizations we've served with, um, also stands true. You aggregate. You get more skilled. You aggregate your education. And so you every time you go someplace, you bring a better you, a better version of you to that, to that organization. And, um, and so there is a bit of a risk to that. You know, I've, I've been a CEO for so long in different organizations. There's a tendency to say you have job security. But I would reverse that and say the first person to lose their job in a problem is a CEO. There's no job security as a CEO. So when you, when you get this, this kind of this rhythm of being the CEO of an organization, you live in a space of risk and you live in a space of commitment to self-improvement so that you can mitigate some of that risk and be better at your tradecraft. Um, as I looked at the role of, at the GGF, I really felt like my aggregated gifts, my aggregated experience, education, um, was able to help me be better for the organization um, than I had been in my past organization. Um, I don't know if that makes sense. Does that, does yeah. that make sense? Well, and it's interesting, too, because I was thinking back to our interview with Josh uh, White a few episodes back, and we were talking about the value of kind of digging into a committed community and being a pastor there long term. But I think the opposite can be true as well, you know, whether it's in nonprofit work or in pastoral work, right? It's not one model where on, the only faithful way to pastor is to be at a church for 35 years or whatever. There's ways to pastor where you are in different congregations over the, the life of your vocational career. And 
God can use that particular pattern in a way that's unique, mm-hmm. that a pastor who's at their own in one parish congregation or whatever mm-hmm. for a decades mm-hmm. maybe couldn't not better or worse but just different different ways of doing mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. and it also seems like as you describe your trajectory throughout the course of your career that there is a sense of vocational calling there's a sense of almost a gravitational pull toward this organization as opposed to some other organization with all of those connections and all of the history that you had and the investment and then would you frame that in terms of a calling yeah. like this is what God wants me to do at this time in my life? Yeah, it's interesting. I, you know, I, I actually remember at one point in my life, I, I, I made, I rededicated myself to Jesus when I was in my late 20s and um, really began to s- intentionally seek out what God wanted me to do with my life. Compared to me seeking for me, I was really seeking what God wanted me to do. And that was unclear. It, when you do that late in your life, in your late 20s, You've already set some pathways for yourself, um, mm. and you you reload when you when when you are deeply committed to what Jesus wants you to do. And so, I remember we I owned a, a chain of restaurants at the time, and I was traveling, and we were in a family crisis, and I and we I was kind of stuck in a, 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 a ice storm, waiting to get to the. Um, to this is not a metaphor. This is not a metaphor. Okay, you were literally in an ice storm. I was okay. in an ice storm. Okay, good. Um, stuck in an ice storm in, in southern Wisconsin. And I just remember a very specific call to go into nonprofit leadership. Mm-hmm. I, I got to the, I, I ended up meeting my wife on the other side of that ice storm uh, later that night. And I said, We're selling our restaurants, we're going into ministry. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and it, it, she kind of, you know, it, it, it shook her a little bit because we knew what that meant. And But she was all about that. Mm-hmm. And we began that path, and um, and so I was going to go into a doctoral program at Columbia International University in, in um, the Carolinas, North Carolina, maybe, um, and um, and I was in that I was actually looking at their program, and it was a combined master's doctoral program for nonprofit leadership, and I was going to go into that, and I got a phone call from Grace Bible College at the time to say, hey, would you be interested in coming and helping us lead some of the things that we're going through right now with President Kemper, and. And I said, well, I'm going to go get my doctoral program complete, and, and we're going to pursue this, but thank you. And we were at a hotel that night over somewhere near Savannah, I think, maybe. And um, and Amy said, does it make sense for you to go spend the money you're going to spend to go get a capacity to work in a nonprofit, or could you just drive home today and work as a nonprofit and not spend <laughs> the money on a degree? And um, and that was a simple version of it all. But, yeah, that I felt a call, and Amy and I both answered that call, and and we weren't clear what that meant. But as I think maybe in this effort to refine my own gifts and skills, um, that call has become more refined also. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I even in, as a superintendent of a, of a Christian school, I began to see what is this all about, you know, and and how is this going to help in my next area of ministry, um, and and so. Um, I, I definitely believe it's a call. I sincerely do. Um, I want to talk maybe about one thing you brought up, and and it's it's a unique thing that nonprofit leaders I would I would say should have, and that sounds maybe more authoritative. Maybe it's a it's a it's a it's a mindset. Maybe um, highly encouraged, highly encouraged mask mandate kind of language. We know <laughs> yeah, how to yeah, use yeah. that. Strongly recommend. Strongly suggest. Recommended. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> this idea of what is the ultimate goal for a nonprofit leader. Now, I can't relate this necessarily to church leadership quite yet in my mind, but 
this idea that we should um, nonprofit leaders role is to prepare the organization for the next leader hmm. and I find more and more and I think we can see it more and more where a nonprofit leader grips it too tightly and when they start taking a possessive perspective of an organization it's really easy to abuse it and to begin even at one degree angles every time you think about it changing it toward being yours versus not ours hmm. and um, I really work hard to keep a loose hand of ownership not of dedication but of ownership to say what do I need to do organizationally to make sure the organization is ready for the next leader who's going to take this role um, and um, and even often in each of the roles I think I've had um, not each but most of them I've actually hired my successor before I left with the intent to help them gear up into that role um, and so this idea of transition I I, it doesn't make me anxious because it, um, it, I'm committed to that. And even in this role, my goal is to already be thinking, what does the next season of leadership need to have? That What do we need to do for the next season of leadership in the GGF? Um, and um, not with an end in mind, but that end in mind. You know, Hopefully that's a long time. Yeah, and that's good. That Over the last, I don't know, three or four more months, I've been having conversations with people kind of in that same venue and I'm I'm seeing whether it's through observation or just thinking through things that that can be one of the the dangers of embedded ministry of being there for a long time is it seems like it becomes difficult to kind of make that transition when the time comes because so much of I mean from in the pastoral work so much of my identity and the identity of Celebration Bible Church are kind of weaving itself together by nature. And so, yeah, I, I think maybe that's a future podcast preparing for, for what's next. Mm -hmm. But I think those are those are good thoughts to, mm -hmm. to, for us to be all thinking about is what is that mm -hmm. kind of tell us end goal. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about what you bring into the executive leadership role. You've got some projects I know that you're working on mm -hmm. and uh, exciting things for the Grace Gospel Fellowship. You mm -hmm. want to break that down for us? So what we, you know, one of the things I've observed about the organization over the last 20 to 30 years is is the ability to work within the the marketplace of the Grace Gospel Fellowship, if you want to call it that, just ha that, that free space to work within that no one else really can and should really have that free space. And clearly there are organizations out in out beyond the GGF um, that do good consultancy work, whether it's fundraising or pastoral ministry or um, you know board engagement. And there's a lot of consultants out there. But I would say that the GGF has a reserved space that, that the churches have provided. And by choice, because we're not a, a denomination, we're a fellowship of churches. And I've always been... Um, I think impressed by how the churches say we desire for a relationship. So an organization like the GGF lives within that construct, and um, and so one of the things we did as a as a I, I would say with our national council and, and some of the planning process was, given that construct, what are the things we should be doing better right now, especially as we come into a season of of difficult church ministry. Quite honestly, that that it's going to be challenging, and we see now and in the future, if the things we see are accurate. And so what do we as an organization owe it to our fellowship of churches? Oh, it might be tough, but um, for lack of a better sense, what do we, what can we or should we be 
providing for our churches and our pastors that only we can or maybe only we should mm-hmm. be providing. So we've been looking at that, and, and one of the um, – I, I, to try to put easier handlebars on that idea, we're using a three-statement, uh, I suppose, driver, which we're calling healthy pastors, healthy boards, healthy churches. And um, we're, we're pastors here. We know about the three points, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. That's our bread and butter. That is. That is. Yeah. We, we're in it. Um, <laughs> they all start with healthy so you can remember it. It's it, easy to handlebar up. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and really, you know, I think for the we've, you know, those of us who have heard the definition of what is the GGF, maybe organizationally, mm. it's, it's always been hard to describe. Well, mm. we are a non-denominational, <laughs> unaffiliated partnership. Right. And that doesn't help when we have a hard time with that description. And so mm. I, one of the things we try to do is make it easier to describe what it is. And so we have been able to define, the. I, I would say the key things, we're calling them key competencies, but just the things, the deliverables that we should be providing for our our pastors and our boards and our churches. Um, so those are some things that we're working on. I don't know if you want to go into detail healthy with that. Pastors, or healthy boards, healthy, healthy boards, churches. healthy yeah. boards, healthy churches. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And we've Jim and I have both seen some of the breakdown of that, and it's fairly complex. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are a lot of layers. There's a lot of detail in those plans, and I think of you as what you've described as coming in and kind of managing change. There's some vision casting that's part of the role. But then there's also that facilitating and equipping aspect. And one of the things that we're really interested in to hear from you, since we both work, Jim works with a board, I'm the president of my board. In fact, you're coming to meet tonight with our board tonight. Right? And he met with our board yesterday. yesterday. Yeah, It's not an accident. <laughs> it's not an accident. <laughs> Good job executing your vision, Brian. Is that you're, right? You're doing it. <laughs> I'm halfway there. You are to be with you tonight. That's so. right. Checking them off the list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But tell us, tell us about your vision for what church boards need to look like. Because I think a lot of times we, as as people working in church boards, we don't know what we're supposed to be doing. <laughs> we kind of know what we've always done or how it's been done in the past. Mm. But it, it can be very difficult to get momentum in a positive direction in terms of church leadership, knowing how to be a healthy church. You know, like that's the first like point in the in the strategic plan, right? Is healthy. No, well, it's pastors. Healthy pastors. Come on, Matt. Three, then healthy three. boards. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> then then healthy, healthy churches. churches. There it is. There it is. See? Uh, what, what, what do we need as boards? Well, you know, I, as, as I have had the, really the blessing and privilege to serve on boards, I, I've always said, I get to, I don't got to. And I think there is this <laughs> sense of, oh, another board meeting, you know, and I, and I really, there is that sense. There is a sense, <laughs> but yet, but yet, it's it's. President Kemper calls it a, a sacred trust, and mm. we we, as leaders and ministries, have this call. Um, I believe, even in a lay ministry or volunteer ministry, and um, and there's also this tendency to not give it our best. You know, we'll we'll we meaning I'll just make a general we, um, we'll we'll do really good with coaching our kids basketball team or, or you know being there for other things but when it comes to the volunteer ministry in our church it's easy not to quite frankly mm. um, because we sometimes give it our last instead of our first and 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 so there is a sense of that in boards but the boards that I serve with um, they're not doing that intentionally um, there's a there's a general sense of okay then what is it we do and so in the 
I'm going to use a word I don't think actually is a word, the corporatizing, um, <laughs> the, the tendency of, of, of our churches to try to reflect or in, inadvertently try to reflect the corporate world is, is a strong pull yeah. because you have a pastor who might be the leader of that church ministry bringing in lay people and the only ministry paradigm they have is, is corporate. Yeah. Um, and, and so what often happens in the, in the board, the church board setting, um, is we, and I, I, I'm easy to blame on this as well, we begin to think operational and mm-hmm. we think mowing the lawn and we think human resources and we begin to think you know, risk management and keeping the lights on and finances. And, and, and then what happens in that, and, and it happens regularly, is the, the true trust that we have been given and and we have actually even taken it calling it a board member so there's kind of a a, a, a transaction there versus a trustee where we're entrusted in it mm-hmm. and, and there i think there's mm-hmm. something really powerful about that that name set um and and what we're trying we're working with boards to understand is all of that operational stuff is important it's not unimportant it's good stewardship it's good management of the ministries but it's not the key role of the board. The key role of the board, we would contend, is is um, shepherding the congregation, ministry, you know, ministry-wise, spiritual health of the organization, praying for the organization, and spiritual accountability among each of the elders and with the pastor, the teaching elder. Um, and how does the board do that role the best? And and maybe even take everything else off the table. I've had enough mm. conversations with boards to say, let the lawn go, just let it grow. <laughs> um, let it be a natural f- field if it has to be. And um, if, that, if that means it allows you to think about something differently. Um, and, and so I, you know, I would contend that there's really no other board role we can um, accept that's like a church board role. Um, it's, it's not like any other nonprofit. It's not like any other for-profit board you might sit on. And that's really our goal, to help our board see that better and in the Healthy Board Initiative. That's a really beautiful vision, something that I resonate with. And I think even, I, I, I think Peterson should play, play some sort of game where every time we reference him, we get a, but uh, he made a, a comment at some point in one of his writings where he says, pastoral work is unlike any other job it's not better than any other job it's not worse it's just different and i think that 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 echoes there i think one of the things that's unique about maybe even we'll we'll go towards the relationship between the pastor and the board is when i look at my board they are my board but they're also part of the congregation and at least from our the way our church is structured, we're all co-elders together when it comes to voting and you know authority and all of that stuff. I have no more or less authority than anyone else in, on my board. So there's this unique reality that with my board, I am pastoring them because they're part of my congregation, but I'm also pastoring with them mm-hmm. because we are co-eldering together. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of a unique aspect of that, that... Um, I don't know, take some learning and mm-hmm. especially a guy like me who came into it, you know, as a kid, right? Mm-hmm. I was 20, not, I'm still young now, but I was, I don't know, 23 or something mm-hmm. when I started and I'm on this board with, you know, guys who've been doing ministry for mm-hmm. decades. Um, there's just a unique kind of interaction that happens mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. The, you know, the idea of, 
the idea of becoming a board member is it is a journey. It's 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 a journey, and I. I think if if we can help board members see that journey and help them maybe create some important waypoints in that journey of what does it look like we're looking right now at even building a um an initiative or a i suppose maybe a a curriculum to help boards build themselves into that space you know you know some health assessment measurements that they can determine where are some areas that they need to grow in and then you know the idea of having a, a a certification program even where we can ask board members to go through something to help them build competencies and strengths. I know at Rush Creek um, we've recently gone through a board reorganization process where we have taken the elder board that we would call and and really taken all the operational work off of their plate and mm. and then we've created what we call a trustee board and that's really the operational side of the ministry. They're the ones who manage the the budget and the um, risk management, all those kinds of things that are just good stewardship for ministry leadership. And then we have a deacon ministry um, that's made up of um, um, husbands and wives who can go in and, and, and tend to the ministry of, of congregational care and visiting in, 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 in hospitals and, and being part of the, um, the connecting ministry of the church. So that, that has been an intentional three-part board um, set that we've created with the with the prayer that it does open up the elders to be able to be that spiritual leadership group. Mm-hmm. Um, not exclusively, but leading that from that area. Why should we be waiting tables? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a good one. Yeah. The, the challenge is that churches are so different in their in their structure of their governance. Yeah. And you know, my church, I think, is similar to Jim's church in that we're set up along a pretty traditional, some would say biblical model of <laughs> elders and deacons. And, and so those, those kind of the, the definition of those roles that you described is, is pretty well delineated. But yet we also meet as a council. And so we meet as a whole, our, you know, our, our charter documents say this is a council of all of the leadership, elders and deacons included. And so there's differentiation of those roles, but there's also a shared sense of responsibility for the whole ministry, and we have that together. And when we have the big meeting, which is a monthly meeting, that really is a shared leadership team functioning more as, like you would say, a board or a council without the delineation of those roles in the in the tactical sense of what we're doing from week to week. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, but that's just one model. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think probably a lot of our churches are set up that way, but some might be more hierarchical, you know, top down with the pastor as functioning as a CEO and not necessarily as a co-elder, mm-hmm. or they might have that set up in their founding documents, but operationally <laughs> they have a, kind of a president CEO view of their mm-hmm. pastor and the pastor ends up having maybe more responsibility yeah. or authority than is healthy. Well, and I think probably a reality too is at least within churches within our fellowship, there are probably some church realities where because of the size of the church or because there is the that's model of kind of what you're expressing at Rush Creek to some people may sound like yeah, that would be awesome if I had, you know, 30 people that I could, you know, when my whole church is not even 30 people. And so there's realities within smaller church ministries that 
but those principles are still there, right? Of like, this is an organization that's not an organization. <laughs> this is a family, a community congregation that operates differently, yet we don't askew all principles, you know? And sometimes we give like leadership principles and business models kind of a hard time here on the podcast. We repent. We're sorry. <laughs> not really. I'm still doing it. Though. I'm still doing it. I'm unoffended. But if we're honest with ourselves, if I'm honest with our, myself, there's there's stuff that we can learn mm -hmm. from that without buying hook, line, and seeker right. into this is how you get a healthy church is you make yourself look like Amazon. Yeah, and some of that was like even built into like your grad program, you know, and you do mission and vision and core values. And, and honestly, we've done some of that at... Grace Bible Fellowship, but I think we all we also try not to be corporatized in the negative connotation sense of the term. Yeah. We we do have some vision, and that helps drive us toward action and keeps us all on the same page with regard to decision making and resource allocation and 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 even the spiritual direction of the ministry. I wanted to ask you, Brian, when when you talk about um, that differentiation of roles, let's say, between eldering and deaconing, shouldn't those who have spiritual leadership in the congregation like have some say in the direction of the funds, right? Because deacons are, or trustees are over here trusteeing and managing the books, mm -hmm. and the elders are over here doing spiritual leadership things. But if they don't talk to each other, then it could be really easy to work cross purposes or to not communicate where gaps open up, mm -hmm. that type of thing. Yeah, that, that is a risk, and, and it's, it's a relatively new paradigm for our church to be working on. But um, one of the things we realize is that operational conversations were taking up a significant part of our, of our time together each month. I, when I Amen. say significant, yeah, it's 90-plus <laughs> percent and without doing the, you know, the actual time study. And, and in fact, sometimes we would get done, and all we did maybe in the area of spiritual um, spiritual work, spiritual growth, mm -hmm. would have been the devotion we did at the end and the prayer time we did at the back end. Yeah. Because, you know, after two and a half hours at, yeah. at, in the evening, we're all tired, yeah. and you just kind of push through. And that um, becomes the last thing. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah. And I think maybe using the euphemism of the frog in the boiling pot, I don't think that's ever the goal. But um, mm -hmm. what what happens, it seems, and, and, I, and I would imagine there are studies on this, the metrics of the church begin to grow and to reflect that milieu, that ethos. Yeah. Um, so it becomes, if, if operations are driving your board's time, it would only stand a reason that the metrics and the rubric of your ministry begins to reflect that. So people, how many seats are being filled every Sunday and... Mm. and, and and while church growth isn't a isn't a negative thing, it's not the driver of the thing, I right. believe. And but it's really easy to get there. It's right. really easy to say that it's is so much more measurable. Yeah, yeah. And that's the business. That's a business model. Yeah. Um, and as ministries begin to grab the good of the business model world, like you're talking, Matt, it's easy to grab the stuff that's exclusively business model world. And some stuff scales, no doubt. Some stuff scales. Um, you know, there's a, 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 a zero waste, um, you know, Six Sigma kind of a sense that businesses drive themselves out of. And, um, and that, the Six Sigma was built around the automotive and the um, aerospace industry of zero waste. That's the Toyota thing, right? That's the Toyota yeah, thing, yeah. 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 And, and there's a lot of organizations that say, well, we can, we can scale that into our organization. 
and it's a for-profit organization and it doesn't scale mm. because there is waste. There's built-in waste such as the food industry and all these kinds of things. And so you begin to drive and your quality goes down because you don't allow for the waste. And and mm. and so then we go to the next level and we we say, well, let's let's take a Six Sigma approach to ministry. Um, zero waste and um, and or whatever that might be. I'm just using that business idea. And that's a dangerous space to be in because um, it doesn't scale. That mindset doesn't scale. Um, you know, in other words, if if we're doing things good, we're growing. If we're doing things poorly, mm-hmm. we're not. Mm-hmm. And that's a really easy business model to mm-hmm. use. And, and in fact, probably should drive a lot of business modeling. It's not the same with churches. Mm-hmm. Um, and boards have to be careful to protect their ministry from that mindset. Mm-hmm. Can you point to why that is? Why that doesn't scale and why you could make the mistake of taking an approach like that, any of these business models, and you would fall into that trap mm-hmm. and and the reasons why it doesn't work? Well, there, I think there's tension in this one kind of a concept that says um, in ministry, it's, it's one life. If we could do something and exhaust all of our resources mm. to save one life, it would be worth it. And I get that. That's a, mm. that's a, that's, that's a noble idea. But then we're, we're, we have to use caution with not trying to be efficient because if, if you could come and say, one life is all it's worth, but what, do you get, what if it was 10 lives? Mm-hmm. What if you could become more efficient and effective in what you do and become more focused in your ministry? Kind of like a reverse Sodom and Gomorrah situation? Yeah, yeah. What if there were 10,000 righteous people? <laughs> what if there were 10,000 righteous people? Yeah, the, this idea of saying, well, let's, let's not discard it all. Let's, let's just find the right mix for the ministry to yeah. say, um, it is about one life, but it's also about 10 lives. It's also about a hundred lives. Well, it's also about the life of the congregation, yes, yeah. right? The mm-hmm. life of the community is a thing. Mm-hmm. I'm really interested in w- what you mentioned a couple of times in terms of built-in waste, and I wonder if there's sort of way you want to think about your congregational life, but the built-in waste mm-hmm. of the ministry that you call it good waste. Yeah. I love that. I'm, that's going to be the name of my first book. <laughs> good waste. Good waste. <laughs> not not like your t- your tummy. Not that correct. Because I'm all about that one yeah, too. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, th- this idea, you know, I think, Matt, you bring up a good, a good question. Um, you know, it would be easy for a pastor to look at their time and do a time study and to say, like you do in a lot of different other industries, and say every minute needs to be worth something. And so <laughs> you start monetizing or start valuizing every minute. Time and, is money. Yeah, and it's really easy to go there. And we also, on the flip side of that, or maybe if you push the pendulum the other way, to have no time accountability. Right. And suddenly you realize what should be taking you 10 minutes is taking you two hours because you're not being right. careful with your time. Right. And so when you look at a pastor in the back of the sanctuary after church visiting with their congregation, mm-hmm. like Pastor Josh talked about in your last podcast, how do you time study that? Yeah. Is that, is that good waste? Um, you know, it, is, it could, could Josh be making better use of his time from a, from a, time study program than spending two hours of his 50 or 60 hours a week ministry mm. just talking with people in the back of the sanctuary but we would say i mean i think we would agree that the three of us that's a beautiful use of time yeah and how do you manage that without never having time accountability yeah um, a blend a, a proper blend i think yeah. is careful yeah and one of the things that i try i try to think of in my role as a pastor sometimes to be kind of the stick in the spoke mm-hmm. of because like you mentioned earlier our whole context 
that our congregation lives in is, for the most part, corporate world, and and that's just the liturgies that have shaped our hearts and how we move. And sometimes I think the most effective thing that as a pastor I can do is to slow that down and to just kind of regularly, consistently, constantly kind of pull people back to we're here on Sunday morning and we may not accomplish anything, but we're opening scripture together and we're worshiping together and we're fellowshipping together and we're doing these things over and over and over and over kind of that reformation, the, the, you know, like I said, the stick in the spoke to try to slow things down. And, and maybe to some degree, like we were talking earlier about the pastor pastoring the board, um, maybe that's a good framework for us to think of as well, but also for the board as a whole, hopefully we'll get to the point where as a group, we can be doing that with our congregation as being that kind of call back to what is essential to the life of the spirit and the life of the congregation. You know, when I, when I think of the apostle Paul talking about wolves um, and using that, that analogy of um, protecting and that shepherding, that kind of that, that, that motif that moves through scripture in, in different ways. And, and near the end of, I, I, of Paul's writings talking about wolves yeah. and, um, and I think, what does that mean? What do, what's he referencing in that mm. space? And, and, and what does that really look like in regard to church ministry? How do we really protect our congregations from that kind of a hazard, that kind of a, a risk? And a wolf is not a, is not a kind creature to a sheep, if, if, we, <laughs> if we play that analogy out or that motif out much. Um, it might even be a big bad creature I, I, that blows yeah. things down. It seems <laughs> we're pretty good at that. Puffs at least. and puffs. <laughs> and this idea of you know how do we do that? And and I, I and it it doesn't come by keeping our lawns mowed. Mm. Um, I, you know, and I know that's a simple answer mm-hmm, to that. Mm-hmm. And as I sp- um, have a chance to speak with more church boards, and we have a very easy base conversation, which is how are you spending your time in a board meeting? That's a really easy conversation to have without having any kind of indictment, but to say, I think you might need to look at that first. Mm. Look, let's 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 just reconfigure your board meeting around a little bit, and you know, and, and that's one of the things when we talk about a board certification program is how do we help a board chairperson become better at just even facilitating that? Because um, often, uh, you know, I think you you bring up a, a good point about having a. a a limited resource of leaders who can serve on a board in a smaller church. And it's not uncommon to have somebody who just stays in perpetuity. They've been on that board for right. 15 years because nobody else has risen up to that space. And um, and and so they're going to bring that habits to that board ministry. And, and so how do we help that reality when there isn't a large pool of folks to deal with um, in, that bur- in that board? Um, and how do we help them do their work better too because that's a that's a tough space for that board chair that you know we it's not uncommon in some of our churches to have a very small group of people who are qualified to serve on a board and so how do we help them there and and how do we help them not feel desperate or lonely in that space just like maybe we're trying to help their pastor Mm. well thanks so much brian one of the things we like to do as we wrap up one of these dynamic podcast conversations (laughs) is ask our guests what's the what's the highlight of ministry for you what do you love to do about it and then what's one thing that's a grind for you that maybe it's not like 
discouraging or like a downer, but like this is hard work. Like this is trench work in the ministry. You know, as I as I think of the the thing that really drives me and, and it gets me um, excited about the work we do is uh, I do is um, as I as I get older and a little bit more experienced in my in my in the gifts God's giving me is to actually see that gift um, help somebody. Uh, you know, um, it's it, it it's easy to consume that gift and to to see how it's helping me um, and 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 the ability to to be able to walk alongside a pastor and over the experience I've had maybe in ministry to help them understand the importance of looking at leadership from a, uh, you know, a multidimensional way and, and helping them grow and then and seeing a light come on in that space um, simply because of the experience I've had and the ability I can have and, and whatever that looks like. And, and so I, I suppose you might call that mentoring and mentoring is something that um, w- when it when it works, it's just a, a, a great deal of fun, mm-hmm. and and and, the, and when it works within our context of our time frame, uh, you know, you never really know how God will use mentoring, but when you can see it work, it's mm-hmm. really a, it makes that a, just a real a real joy. On the other side of it, um, the the difficult part for me is um, is ministry leadership is insatiable. It's an insatiable monster. Um, mm-hmm. You can work. 50 hours a week or 100 hours a week and you can always feel like you're not doing enough <laughs> there's never an end to it yeah. and um can never be satisfied can never be satisfied <laughs> another <laughs> hamilton group <laughs> uh, yeah th- this idea of of n- just not having the ability to sit back and be okay with it mm-hmm. there's always work to do and um i don't know if i've learned to quite juggle that one yet mm-hmm. um, there you know i I think of I, I think of the people I want to talk with and the boards I want to help and and the work ahead of us and the, that seems to be something that um, weighs heavy on me and I've never uh, at least in ministry been able to say I think I think I'm good I think I'm good mm-hmm. I, I I think we can have a, a Saturday where I I don't have to do work or or think of work or or think of somebody who needs work um, and that's something hard for me and but I know that's not unique but that's that would that's one of those things that is um always driving the back of my mind the work that still needs to be get done get done and i might be the only guy that's able to do it mm. in, in in regard to my job mm. i don't think you're alone in that feeling around your particular calling to ministry and the and the work you've taken on i think a lot of pastors feel that way mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. it's something you we are all working through and learning and you got to find time to learn how to crochet. Yeah, that's the really crochet the thing is yeah. really, really it's come drawing back me, to you. <laughs> drawing me. Close. You got to include that at the beginning, or it's not going to make oh, sense in make the sense. end. <laughs> so, speaking of crocheting and how-to books, we often like to end an interview by asking for a book recommendation. Do you have anything for our vast listener audience if yeah. they're looking for a book to read? You know, I, I think knowing the nature of the pastoral calling podcast and. And the nature of, of my role is I come alongside pastors as much as I, I'm able to. Uh, there's a book that's been written by a guy who's been just doing great work in church consulting for a long time across the country. Uh, the author's name is Will Mancini. And I talk about this book pretty frequently. It's called Future Church. And it was written in 2020, so it was written mid, mid-COVID. Um, and so it's got a very, um, a very timely, relevant message about what it is that's taking place in the Western church in particular in the U S and, um, and 
really how the the playbook is changing for our pastors. Mm. Um, and I think it's a relevant book for anyone involved in church ministry leadership, not just for pastors. And um, it really talks about the tension that exists between having programs and having a life-changing ministry. Mm. Um, and and there is tension that exists in that space. And I think it's a book that, that I think Will Mancini handles it very well, ha- handles that conversation really well. Great. Yeah. Future Church. We'll Future. check it out. Yeah. It's worth it. Thanks so much for joining us today, yeah. Brian. Yeah, it's been good. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Pastoral Calling Podcast with Jim Shamaria and me, Matt Loverin. Join us every two weeks as we start a new conversation about life and leadership in the local church. If you like us, make sure you follow us on SoundCloud or on iTunes. And also tell all your friends so they can join the conversation.